difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, and Scott Tobias. In our last episode, we talked about A Mighty Wind, the Christopher Guest-directed mockumentary about a concert thrown by folk revival style words. With this episode, we'll shift to a different style of music and a different style of comedy by discussing Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. The film opens with a music video released online as a teaser a few weeks before the movie came out, a performance of the song Volcano Man by Fire Saga, an elaborately costumed music duo consisting of Lars Eriksson and Sigrid Eriksdottir, played respectively by Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. What the clip didn't reveal at the time is that the video depicts the music dreams they hope to someday realize. Their musical reality? playing local favorite Yaya Ding Dong for the hard-drinking residents of the only pub in their small town in the country's barren north. But a series of odd, sometimes unfortunate developments sends them to the Eurovision Song Contest in Edinburgh as Iceland's representatives. Once there, they're forced to contend with their provincial background, their far more polished competitors, and the vagaries of their relationship, a could-be romance complicated by large musical dreams and the slight possibility they might be siblings through the proclivities of Lars's extremely handsome father, Eric, played by Pierce Brosnan. We'll talk it over and consider the wonders of co-star Dan Stevens and other aspects of the film after the break. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. This is Secret. We are Fire Saga. Who wants to hear your Eurovision song? All of Iceland thinks we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk, but I am dead sober. Idiot. Officially, Fire Saga will be representing Iceland at Eurovision this year. I hate them! Absolutely terrible. They're old, disgusting people. But we have no choice. So we're in. All right, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. I only became aware of this movie fairly recently because I was working on something else about Will Ferrell. And looking at it by description, at the moment we were in history, I said to my wife, we really need this movie right now to be really funny. And for me, it delivered. It was funny. I want to know everyone else's thoughts on this film. I'm history's greatest monster. I <laughs> I just don't find Will Ferrell very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, like as a, I knew as... this was coming, but I'm still not ready for it. What okay, about Eugene Lee's performance and and uh, Mighty Wind? I mean, that's fantastic. <laughs> like I, now, granted, Will Ferrell would have done that role much better, and we should just like use every CGI resource imaginable <laughs> to sub him into a Mighty Wind to improve it. Yeah, I like. The older he gets, the less his dim-witted 
man schlub, arrested development boy man shtick works for me. And it really didn't work for me all that well, like uh, 10 years ago or, or more either. And to me, this movie just sparks so much. It's so much fun and it's so strange and it's so funny whenever he disappears. And because mm. his character is playing a, a big, sulky obsessive who keeps running off when, whenever things go badly. And then we just get Rachel McAdams and Dan Stevens and a whole crowd of cameoing artists on stage. We get quite a lot of this movie without him. And it's great. I kind of wish he'd abandoned the whole thing in a fit of peak <sighs> mid story because I really enjoyed an awful lot of this movie. It's just whenever he shows up, there's a, a repeated thing that happens during the movie that I think is meant to play as a gag where Rachel McAdams character, not actually Rachel McAdams is singing. And then he'll come in with this sort of like monotonal, dull vocal element. And it's meant to play as though like he's dragging her down. This is his dream, which she's fully engaged in for his sake. But she's just a better singer and a better performer and a, a better stage presence. And the whole film played kind of like their musical performances to me. Just like every time he showed up, I just kind of had that feeling of, you know, if we had another Dan Stevens level, like charisma font in this film, in this role, I think it would be just about a perfect comedy. And as it is, I think it's a good comedy. That's about it. Well, I'll stake a claim to the perfect comedy camp because I actually like Farrell a lot in this and more than I've I've liked him in the past. I actually, even though he is arguably, really, it's not even an argument like too old for this role. Like, I do think that is the joke. And I think I like Will Farrell more. I like his shtick, as, as you call it, Tasha, more the older he gets because it becomes more absurd. And I feel like that is kind of the frequency of Farrell's comedy that I respond to most is when he goes absurd. But what I liked about it here, as opposed to something like Anchorman or, or Talladega Nights, is that it has more heart, I guess, than a lot of, you know, older Farrell characters. And you know, I've had discussions with a few people who say they'd be happy if all of the romance relationship plot was stripped out of this movie. And I really just don't agree with that at all. And it's not about Farrell so much as it's about what he does for Rachel McAdams' character. I really like in this film how he sort of puts himself narratively in a support role in both their musical partnership and their relationship or her him realizing like his whole arc is realizing his role as a support to her please hook me up with all of your friends who hate the romance in this uh, movie <laughs> I, so i can I, talk about this movie with them i can also i can also hook you up with my aunt who said that will ferrell was miscast in this which made me laugh because he created the, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. this, this movie um but and also that, that's another thing like i just i like ferrell in this movie i love mcadams in this movie I, I love dan stevens in this movie i just i really liked this movie beginning to end it's very much in my wheelhouse, my hamster wheelhouse, um, <laughs> like uh, musically, as, as you with a mighty wind, Tasha, were very tuned in to the music that it was dealing in. You know, I am sort of a pop music aficionado, though admittedly not a Eurovision specific uh, aficionado. I don't know. This movie hit for me on pretty much every level. I thought it was a delight. Um, but you know, I understand if Farrell doesn't do it for you, there's going to be sort of a big gaping hole in the center of it. And, you know, that's too bad for you, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I like this film, too. I saw it twice. I, I saw it the Friday it posted. 
post movies post now. That's what happened. That's what movies do. They don't debuted. come out. They, it's they, still they, debuted. They, they get like <laughs> premiered. Uh, I don't know. They get scheduled and posted. And I don't. Know. Uh, so I saw it when it posted, and 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 I thought, you know, this is a perfectly fine movie. It reminded me a little bit of like Blades of Glory level Feral. I mean, similar type of competition thing. Uh, you know, riffing on a certain milieu. I mean, it, you know, I'd seen that type of thing from his him before and i've enjoyed it and i enjoy, enjoyed blades of glory as well and it reminded me also a little bit of a uh, local hero uh the the bill forsyth movie which i love and it reminded me a little bit of the sort of post full monty type of movies that kind of came out in a glut in indie theaters in the, in the 90s and early 2000s where it was usually set you know some idyllic setting and like ireland or scotland or something like that and it was a lot of kind of quirky characters we I mean, kind of had that feel to it you're talking about like off. waking Ned Divine or something like that. You're talking about you're talking about Kinky Boots. You're talking, <laughs> about, you're talking about Calendar Girls. Yeah. Yes. What's the one with uh, with Julie Walters and they're, they're smoking pot? Cal- oh, uh, oh, green something, right? Something. Anyway, yeah. th- those types of things. It had that kind of feel to it. Again, fine. All that stuff is these things. I, fine, fine, fine. But then it was like, it's like one of those tunes. You know, it's like one of those pop tunes that kind of gets in your head. And then I watched it a second time. Last night, just casually, I just I was like, "Yeah, you know what? I'll just throw it on. You know, refresh my memory a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, play Catan on my phone." And I started watching, it and I was just completely absorbed and charmed by it, and and uh, it kind of won me over in a pretty big way on, on second viewing um, for all the reasons that it, that you mentioned. I mean, I I, I like Will Ferrell just fine, but it, but I think there is a deferential component to that performance which is unusual for him because he is such a big dominant sort of wacky figure in all of his movies so much is given over to the other talent in the movie and and it plays crucially in the drama as genevieve mentions you know like the climax especially which is entirely in service to her and to iceland in general so uh i found all that very touching so uh i had a good time this is not a world i'm familiar with at all eurovision is something i i have not sampled i've just seen some uh clips and headlines but um it was it's too long way way too long but it's other otherwise it's a, a good movie so i went pretty deep into the will ferrell filmography for a piece i did for the ringer kind of arguing making a case for him as as, as a dramatic actor or like like kind of needing to find like elements of dramatic depth to his performance uh that had kind of been lost along the way because the last half decade or so have been Pretty rough when it comes to Will Ferrell movies. There's, there's, you know, uh, there's, you got your Holmes and Watsons and your Daddy's Homes too. Uh, it's mm-hmm. and I've seen them all, and they're not. They're, it's, it's kind of. I've heard good things about rough. the house, though. People like the yeah, house. Yeah, no, that's that's incorrect. <laughs> really? Okay. That, is in, that is incorrect. That is a. Uh, oh uh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it was not good. No, it's not. I completely forgot. Yeah, it I saw should it. be good. It should be good. It's it's him and it's Amy Poehler. Yeah, and it's uh it's uh, Jason Mantzoukas, but it's it's rough and weirdly mm-hmm. like weirdly super violent in a way that's mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> off putting. But you know, he was in the movie called Downhill a remake of Force Majeure that came out mm-hmm. earlier this year that was Julia Leo Drive. So no one saw, and it's not great. It's fine, but he's quite good at it. I mean, he's good when you give him a little more emotional depth. And I think that's kind of what you get here. You kind of get a little bit of the comedic Will Ferrell and a little bit of the dramatic Will Ferrell. Like, I, I know, Tasha, I know you're a fan. You know, for all your professed Will Ferrell aversion, I know you're a fan of the movie Stranger Than Fiction. I was going to ask, where does Stranger uh, Than Fiction fall then, like, into your yeah, Will I feel Ferrell like, assessment? Know, I kind of want to see a little bit more of that Will Ferrell. And I think you get a little bit more of that here. Um, I don't think it's absolutely top notch like 
Anchorman uh, level uh, Will Ferrell, but I liked it a lot. I mean, I don't know if you're going to necessarily get that from a David Dobkin film. Uh, and <laughs> you're right, Scott. It is, it is it is too long. I mean, there's there's yeah. there's trims should be made somewhere, but uh, but it's also it's delightful. All right, so I, literally I, I, everyone I've talked about this has said it could be 30 minutes shorter. And I would like to know what you would. That's just. Would I think it starts to flag between the semifinals and the finals in Iceland. I think. I think that's where you. That's like when where he goes back to Iceland. Yeah, yeah. I think but that's where you get the elves. Like, it, the elves payoff. <laughs> the payoff is great, but I think. I think it has. It struggles to kind of find its legs again. Um, it finds them. I mean, the the climax of the film is just massively satisfying, but. Um, but I, I would think... just trim bits here and there. I, I just I feel like an awful lot of the the non musical scenes like stretch out a little bit too long, and I just I feel like there's too much repetition. I, I feel like I hear Will Ferrell talk about how his dream ever since childhood has been to win the Eurovision Song Contest about four more times than I need to. It feels like there are too many things that get hammered home over and over and over again and again and again, and it just it seems unnecessary. It's it's not a complicated plot. It's not a plot that needs re-explaining because people are going to like lose track of who loves who in a in a long-standing unrequited way. I also could have done without the endless fake-out kissing. I could have done without the uh, Will Ferrell palms Rachel McAdams' face uh, in order to tell her that no, this is not the right time for us to kiss. I mean. I, it's just so much of the film is so pro forma in a comedic way. You know, it's a rom com in a lot of ways. Couple belongs together. Couple can't get together because reasons. You keep waiting for a couple to get together. A couple gets together. That's a rom com. So, like, why we need to keep hitting the exact same points over and over when everybody already knows all these beats? I don't know. I'll just say this, not to get the comparisons too early, but Spinal Tap is 82 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all the Christopher Guest directed movies clock in it, or the, or the trilogy clock in it under 100 minutes. And they, if you get the DVDs or Blu-rays, they're full of hilarious deleted scenes that I think in any other movie would have been highlights. So I don't know. It's good to, it's good to know where to trim sometimes. I, I've also got to say, like, the song along is the kind of thing I normally just eat up in anything musical. I mean, <laughs> the riff off, <laughs> the riff offs are my favorite parts of the the Pitch Perfect movies. I go back and revisit them on YouTube all the time. Maybe I shouldn't admit that, but uh, you know, and and like when Glee was doing mashups all the time, I'm I'm very into that. But here, it like it would have made just a a killer promo or deleted scene but coming where it does in the film it really serves almost no purpose except to give rachel mcadams like a little more chance to to sing and a little (laughs) more chance to to end up with dan stevens for the night but just like narratively it's it's a huge dead spot No. You're murder you're trying you're murdering Genevieve. You're just literally with your words. Well, I'm afraid of uh her love of this kind of big musical number bankrupting the next picture show, so I've got to blow up this podcast in order. No, I mean what I love about that sequence is that it is a love letter to Eurovision. Like I, I think something that is really special about this movie is that Will Farrell was dying to make a movie about Eurovision. His yeah. wife is his wife is Swedish. They so he he was like they would they would go visit Sweden every year and he was like exposed to it there he's gone to he's like attended the actual event like several times and all of those for those of you who are unaware all of those singers in the song along are Eurovision alumni 
So I think just having that in the center of the film, it really does feel in so many ways like the heart of the film, which is weird to say because it's so separate from the narrative, as you say, but it feels like what people respond to about Eurovision specifically just distilled down into this big production number. And I I love the song along. I was in tears during the song along, even though I don't (laughs) know any of those cameos besides Conchita Verst, who is the bearded singer. Yeah, it's uh, like uh, bizarre and ironic to me that I would even consider saying this because this is normally exactly the kind of like big, ridiculous production number that I love in musicals. I love it on its own. I don't love it as part of this particular movie, as this particular story. It just, the pacing seems wrong. The placing seems wrong. And the direction is just completely different from everything else. It honestly feels like they brought Baz Luhrmann in for this. If there were like three of these musical numbers in this movie, I would probably like it 10 times more. Just because at that point, it would be a a Baz Luhrmann movie. You know, it would be his Moulin Rouge uh, which is a film that I, I love to excess. And that is a movie that is all about excess. And this is a sequence that's all about excess. It just doesn't feel like it fits into the film that David Dobkin is making, the story that this film is trying to tell otherwise. But no, but it is though. I mean, I mean, it's a, this great moment out of time. I think you, you kind of always want movies to do this kind of thing, to kind of step out of the narrative and give you a moment. And I don't think there's a better place in this movie for such a moment than this party where everyone has kind of come together and you could have, you know, some sort of special collaboration like that materialize. I mean, I guess it does have kind of the feel of, of this almost music video that's been kind of like placed in the middle of the movie, but it's so joyous and the style's nice. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's spastic in the way that, that a Baz Luhrmann film is. It's very fluid. It's just a very nicely choreographed sequence where the movement and the and the music all kind of segues nicely. It just flows. I think it's I think it's a good sequence. I like the two. That's three pros, one con. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> let's wait, wait. Let's only kind of move on. I'm gonna throw out just a totally wackadoo theory at you here. What if this movie just plain didn't have Will Ferrell at all? What if instead of this tragic story of a boy with arrested <laughs> development wrote. whose father doesn't love him enough and who's wasted his his life on this insane fantasy that's only going to come true for insane reasons? What was it? What if it was about the much more sincere character? You know what? What if it was about uh, like a more of a Cinderella story about this woman? I mean, I think it is talent. <laughs> but but I, again, that was my the whole argument that... about why I like Will Will Ferrell in this movie. I think he makes it about Rachel McAdams's character. But that yeah, see, but that's just it. I think that you could remove all of the Will Ferrell scenes from this movie. And you'd lose a lot of like slapstick stage comedy where the two of them are fighting. You'd lose like a little pathos, but it really could just as well be about like her and Dan Stevens and him trying to kind of seduce her to the dark side of uh, musical performance for the sake of flash and money. It would have everything that I really liked about this film, including the central uh, performance, the song along, which I think would fit much better into this version of the movie that I'm I'm postulating. I like I don't I don't know I just I don't think you'd lose anything except an echo of an awful lot of other very similarly toned Will Ferrell movies. But who you lose, you would... lose the script that he co-wrote in that 
who would yell, who would yell <laughs> at the Americans? The, the, the whole exi- the existence of the whole project. I mean, I, I think I think he, I don't know. I, I think you'd lose a lot. Yelling at the Americans <laughs> is another thing that you could just so easily cut all of from the movie, and it no, wouldn't funny. lose anything. No, no, yeah, no, it's no, no, that's, no. That's you don't. No, lose... Next, you're going to tell me you don't like Yaya yeah, yeah, Ding Dong. <laughs> who, who's who's very we'll handsome father yeah, yeah, would Pierce Brosnan be if if Will Ferrell wasn't in the film? All right, so that's that is an issue because uh, Will Ferrell's very handsome father, Pierce Brosnan, with his Icelandic accent, like he does feel like he belongs in like all those films you mentioned, and maybe also the Englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain, or Awaking the Divine, or like any of a number of um... the Julia Walters pot movie. Which one is it? <laughs> I'm gonna find this out here. Hold on, Google. <laughs> Julie it's like, Walters it's like, pot movie. It has like a title that references. Like, uh, it's like Mrs. Greensleeve's Saving Grace. No? There you go, Saving Grace. Saving Grace? I thought there was like... That's it, I think. Isn't there one with... Isn't there one with... Yeah, that's the one. But isn't there one with like green in the... T- All right, never mind. Let's let's move on. <laughs> Tasha, uh, <laughs> you, may, you may conclude your point before we all dismiss it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I mean, yes, Pierce Brosnan does, in fact, feel like he was ported in from all of those movies you previously mentioned, plus maybe uh, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill and Came Down a Mountain, plus like The Full Monty, uh, Waking Ned Divine, like any number of Danish films I've seen over the years that all have this kind of like like small town collective uh, group feeling to them. And I would hate to lose him because he is kind of uh, kind of a blast, but I would be willing to do that in order to get this down to a 90 minute movie that wasn't full of like the same draggy circular comedy okay what all right let's let's just throw out things i'm gonna throw out things to tasha whether and she'll tell us whether or not they should be included in the movie uh yeah yeah ding dong <laughs> no probably I, not right oh i no. think we should talk about yeah yeah ding dong uh in <laughs> conjunction with the mighty wind that's a really good connection to be honest okay uh speed round then iceland should have been should it have been set in iceland I don't know. I like I love the I love the visuals. I love the elf element. The there were times when the accents seemed to border on the right Should it involve the Eurovision song contest in any way? You know, I like it for the title, but not for the story. I think I, the movie would have moved so much more fleetly if you'd cut out all of the musical performances and instead of making them musicians, maybe they could have, I don't know, like worked in bladder control uh, mechanisms of sure. some kind. Okay. Like But you'd keep the hamster wheel amid all that I, there should be hamster wheel in every scene of this movie <laughs> okay. and the elf houses too we should yeah. talk about the ice <laughs> be just a hamster wheel full of elf houses and rachel mcadams standing in front of it that's the whole film it would cost so much less and i i would be completely on board for it it is a real thing and i have a i have a statistic here here for you is that 54 percent of icelanders either believe in elves or say it's possible they exist and and uh, right. they will go too far <laughs> yes, elves. elves You've been to this uh, uh, elf crazy place, Keith. Have you not? I have. I did not see any elf houses. It is a wonderful place, though, and uh, I think there's a lot of warmth in the depiction of Iceland, uh, and a lot of accuracy is, is well, in very broad terms. But it's sort of like, uh, I'm glad they shot there. I mean, the look of it, the way life would center around like one one uh, uh, pub makes complete sense. They actually went to Husevek to to yeah. film, and and like people are like, "Why are you doing this?" Uh, I've never been to the. I've actually never been to the north, which is is like the sort of the less trafficked area. So like, 
it is, you know, Reykjavik would be very far away and, and, and a very big city uh, if you were in Husavik. With that note from the Icelandic tourist uh, uh, board, <laughs> when quarantine is up, go visit, go visit Iceland. It is, a, it is a wonderful place. It, it is actually very cheap to get there. Everything, once you get there, is very expensive. But you know. I have been to the uh, airport on a layover through Iceland, um, and it was a very nice airport. It's a good airport. Uh, they have a, oh, what is an expensive airport, though? They, they, have, a, they, have, a, they have a great juice place there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, well, we'll talk more about juice. Uh, well, actually, we won't talk about juice, but we'll talk a little bit about Iceland, a lot about music when we get back after the break to talk about the connections between Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, and A Mighty Wind. Get back in there right now and play Yaya Ding Dong! No, we are done for tonight! You have to play it! Why do I have to play it? I already played it! I don't care! You have to play it again! Tell me, when will it be enough for you? It will never be enough! I only want to hear Yaya Ding Dong! Fine, I'll play it! I'll play it! We're having a break! Hey guys, he's going to play Yaya Ding Dong! It's the only thing that makes him happy! going to play it, but I'm going to tell him to F off during the song, so. Okay, listen. Last night, I went to the Galgren lava field to ask the elves to help us. Hear me out. Hold on. No. Elves again. Don't do it. You know I have nothing to do with elves. Lars, shut your mouth or the elves will shut it for you. Please, elves don't exist, Sigrid. (gasps) You're killing me. Take it back. I can't take it back. You have to take it back. Look, it's not going to be elves that get us into the song contest this year. It's going to be the perfect song. Plus elves. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, you'll start with the obvious one. Uh, They're both comedies with music in them, but I think they take kind of different approaches to them. Although, you know, I'll say what they do have in common is that if you're not, as with Spinal Tap, if you're not paying attention, these will be perfectly acceptable Eurovision uh, songs and performances, uh, much like in A Mighty Wind, the, the songs could pass for 60s folk revival stuff. And I think that kind of accuracy is something they have in common and part of what makes both of them work. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I think both of these films are reverently irreverent about uh, the their respective musical stylings. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't feel like, I mean, I think there is, you know, some comedy in the music in both but i don't think either one pushes it too far you know uh, it, which is good uh you know i think you know you, you don't have the equivalent of like big bottom or something in either one of these movies in terms of the the lyric lyrical content being you know where all the jokes are going to be it could in both cases as you say pass for Eurovision or passport folk revival it makes uh you know and, and i think the more you're into those things may, maybe the more you appreciate it i i feel pretty disconnected from both so i i couldn't speak with authority but it, but they both feel like they've been thoroughly researched and and uh the music at least in the context of both films uh, uh you know works really well i think both of these films musically are characterized by an utter pretense of sincerity at least a sort of face of sincerity that makes the funnier stuff even funnier but both of these musicals do also have a song that is just built around uh, like a juvenile sex joke and like yaya ding dong is a, an extended expanded dick joke and then 
A Mighty Wind. I just I remember the first time I saw it when we got to the end of the song, A Mighty Wind, and we get to hear about this this mighty wind that's blowing you and me. And I was like, that is a long way to go for a blowjob joke. <laughs> that the, I also thought it was a fart joke. Oh, really? Uh, no, yeah. it's it's blowing you and me. Always struck me as a as a sex joke. Huh. So oh, you're blown. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead. So here's my here's the thing about yeah yeah ding dong though, is that there are <laughs> there are so yes, many please. Eurovision songs that turn on the phrase ding dong. Like I, I shared one in our in our little Slack, and my friends have sent me others. You know, I think there's something about the phrase ding dong that maybe uh, crosses. <laughs> cultural barriers uh it's onomatopoeic quality but so even something that is an extended dick joke as you say like yeah yeah ding dong it's still based in a knowledge and reverence of the the music style that is being parodied even though it's more of like a german drinking song than than a eurovision song like in terms of musicality but yeah 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 also, in terms of musical parody, I don't know if if you guys uh, had this in mind when you were watching, but uh, I was reminded of our long ago pairing of Spinal Tap and Pop Star, uh, uh, which is a, a very similar pairing to this in a lot of ways. But thinking of how the humor and the music work together in these films, I think a lot of and, and Scott, I think you were you were just saying something of this effect. A lot of it comes down to like how much jokes are in the lyrics themselves versus sort of the 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 joke being this nods to the style of the music and something like pop star where you're in a hip like the lonely island you know they 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 rap and there's a lot of words in the music and a lot of room for actual jokes whereas eurovision you know it's in it's playing in the pop music milieu the international pop music which kind of traffics in more generalized metaphorical statements your your lions of love and your your ding dongs you know um so I don't really know what point I'm winding toward other than to sort of reinforce the idea that the humor is kind of linked to how lyrics work within the form that is being parodied. The other thing, too, though, about Eurovision, I think, is that the stagecraft mm. is really such a big deal in terms of where the humor might come from, because that's where you get the glitter and the excess and the hamster wheels and the lions or whatever the he's doing that song you don't have to really jam up the actual songs with jokes when you have uh, so much going on um, on stage at the same time both of these films have to strike a certain balance between not wanting the, the the movie to come to a complete halt for musical performances and yet the musical performances are such a, an important part of the story and I, I feel like both of them maybe struggle a little with, with figuring out how to manage that balance. Like you need enough of Lion of Love early on to understand Dan Stevens' personality and, and performance and to get a sense of why he's been a success, but you can't have too much of it or it's going to overshadow him playing later. At the end of the movie, you want to get more Lion of Love because it, like, it's his big moment to shine and he is part of the competition. But at the same time, you don't want so much of it that it overshadows your main character or, uh, slows the, the story down at the end of the story. And in the same way, A Mighty Wind has all of these 
uh, little samples of the songs we're going to hear later. Some of them like very humorous samples, like we're just going to get a line or two so we can see that this is a funny song and we'll get more of the song later. But even in the concert itself, uh, we keep cutting to what's going on backstage and we get very few like complete musical performances because again, there's that concern that if you're watching a, a three and a half minute song all the way through, you're just watching a music video. I think that that's a just like a pacing issue and a structural issue that both of these films have to contend with. And I think they both strike the balance well. I think they both do it well. But there are times that you might just want to actually see all of, I don't know, Potatoes in the Paddy Wagon or Lion of Love uninterrupted. And uh, the with The Mighty Wind, they actually filmed the whole thing and then like later released the entire concert as the front of house would have seen it. I kind of wish slash hope that there's a, a Eurovision of that where we actually get to see more of these songs. I mean, there is a, a soundtrack album that is definitely expanded from the film. And interestingly, we didn't really uh, get into the technicals of how the singing worked in, uh, in Eurovision. But for those of you who haven't already looked it up yourself, that is not Rachel McAdams singing for the most part. That is the singer Molly Sondane, but uh, what they did for the film itself was blend McAdams's vocals with hers, I guess, just to sort of make it sound a little more more realistic. But I've kind of seen when they were doing the real acrobatic vocals that was that was not her, but it's, yeah. a lot of times it did sound like Rachel McAdams. So it was a good it was a good job. Yeah, but uh, on the the soundtrack, it is purely Molly Sandane, and apparently Dan Stevens was supposed to do the same treatment for his vocals, but uh, was not able to because uh, a pandemic happened. So, so just but, to back up, Dan Stevens. How, yes, we didn't get We haven't talk. really talked about that much, but like, very, very strong dramatic actor, very it's creepy true. in The Guest. He, I didn't know he was this funny. And if he could sing on top of that, I think that's just too much for one person to, to be able to do, frankly. Well, you clearly have not seen Beauty and the Beast. Uh, his, oh yeah, uh, no, I haven't. His capstone performance. Yeah, I don't. I don't blame anybody who's not pulling off the best of their ability. I like that song. The song that he does in the live action Beauty and the Beast is so bombastic and over the top. I mean, mm -hmm. it belongs in Eurovision. <laughs> it's just, it's a ridiculous song. It's a kind of a ridiculous performance. And of course, he's trying to do it under uh, like. I don't know what the equivalent is of 300 pounds of makeup is when it's all digital. It's an original song, uh, or is it like Under the Sea? Yes, there's a, an original song for The Beast in the live-action Beauty and the Beast that, like, when I wrote about the movie at the time, it was like, this is actually, like, not the worst addition to this musical compared to a lot of the other really terrible things they did to particularly the music in the live-action so version. It's <laughs> the worst. But that said, like everything about the original was kind of built around that idea that the beast has this temper because he's full of despair. And like in reality, he's shy and somewhat kind, as uh, Bell put puts it. And instead, we've got him like belting out this like operatic, like Lordy style number mid movie in the live action version. And it's just like, OK, but who is this character? <laughs> so you're saying I should catch up with this? I, you know, anything you can do to reduce the number of people in the world that have seen the Disney live action movies, the better. But Dan Stevens, great in this. Yeah. <laughs> as, as we were saying. Yeah. Oh my God, his hair. I don't know if that's a wig. I don't care, but his hair. And I really is like the resolution, his his character. I mean, I, I mean, here's another sort of very tenuous connection between the two films, but kind of uh, 
along similar lines of the revelation of Harry Shearer's character at the very end of A Mighty Wind. Um, I wouldn't say it's a revelation that Lemtov is gay, but the acknowledgement thereof and of of why his behavior has been the way it's been throughout the film, I think is uh, handled with a lot more grace than uh, the, uh, the somewhat similar revelation in A Mighty Wind is. Yeah, and if nothing else, like it doesn't become a big focus of the story, but it also is never played off. I kept expecting because of, as I say, the familiar structure of the story, the big like face heel turn where he was revealed as uh, just some kind of monster. And instead, he's revealed as a man with a secret that has to keep hiding it. And it's actually played off as kind of sweet. And the fact that, you know, he ends the movie not with all of his uh, dastardly dreams dashed, but just like standing with an old friend uh, who understands him, I think is just really exceptionally generous of the movie. I mean, he's just he's posited, I think, as a romantic rival. And the fact that he's not that is a pleasant surprise. And he also gives us this wonderful angle into the whole thing. I mean, he has this experience so he can kind of walk them through. Uh, show them the ropes a little bit and say why this country is not going to win and how, how nobody likes the UK so they don't have a chance and I, I thought that was all it's all important stuff just to give us context um, mm-hmm. for the event and um, it was a functional aspect of that performance on top of it just being generally delightful. He also just has really startling eyes. Oh, yeah. There were so many shots in this movie of both like close-ups of his eyes and close-up of Will Ferrell's eyes. And both <laughs> of them seem to have just these remarkably like like bright, light blue-colored <laughs> I eyes. I like, kept wondering. Trash. <laughs> By comparison, Will Ferrell's eyes are No, no. Like <laughs> we could just garbage, take Will Ferrell's eyes out of this entire movie and it would be... <laughs> Just, just pluck them out. Just no, I think you should take Will Ferrell's eyes entirely out of Will Ferrell. Just no. Now, early on, when you're in the um, Volcano Man song, and then like transitioning out of that into their their real performance, and then later when he and uh, Rachel's character are, are talking outdoors, like I just I kept noticing his eyes, and I kept thinking, is that is that actually their real color, or is there some like very specific color grading going on here? you know to to make them pop more just in part because when you've got this character who is you know a a late middle-aged man who's kind of on the dumpy side and the movie does not mind you knowing that given how often it puts him in a unitard and he's up against like frequently half-naked dan stevens maybe you need to give him a little a little extra edge i don't know maybe they both just have really startlingly attractive eyes but i it, it just really uh it was i mean dan stevens dan stevens definitely has those eyes i remember it being struck by it in the guest do you remember it from uh almost physically knocking him down (laughs) i was gonna say and and then i and then i looked directly in those amazing eyes as i fled the theater from the audience q a (laughs) you always always got to skip the q a um yeah will ferrell was a marathon runner though side note but um wild Getting back to the points of comparison, however, I, I think that kind of generosity of spirit is something it shares the Christopher Guest movies, even though I feel like the approaches to comedy are very different. I mean, Will Ferrell always kind of pushes things to the point of absurdity and sometimes beyond, whereas I feel like most of the humor from A Mighty Wind comes from being just this close to real i mean you know the mockumentary style fits his his comedy so well because it is something that could you know it's this close to there's a lot of verisimilitude there 
I agree there's a lot of verisimilitude. I don't know if I'd call it generosity in the Christopher Guest movies, just because I feel like there's so much mockery going on there. And it's certainly mocking stuff that deserves to be mocked. You know, it's it's mocking self-importance and self-absorption and the blinkeredness that comes of being part of a tiny scene. Like, I don't, I don't consider these like overtly mean or brutal movies or, or anything, but I don't know that I feel that they're that generous to the types that they're mocking in a way just because <laughs> maybe it's because they're too accurate to be generous. There's a kindness to giving Lemtov, if not what he wants, then at least what he needs, that's maybe more edging into fantasy in a way where uh, Christopher Guest's movies verisimilitude and reality may be less kind to the characters in a way uh, because it, it is making fun of them. I think there's a lot of affection, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of fondness for those characters, even though those films mock their pretensions and delusions. That's yeah, I mean, there's a baseline sincerity to these films that are touching in their own way. I mean, I think both of them have pretty significant emotional payoffs in the finale and the fact that, I mean, I, there's obviously the, the kiss at the end of the rainbow, which I've said before was just just really killed me this this time in uh, Mighty Wind, but um, but I, I you know the the fact that the climactic bit in Eurovision also has bits of song that are sung in Icelandic and the significance of that moment to where it's a disqualifying thing, but also you know a very warm sort of nationalist gesture uh, to the people back home you know where they grew up I mean, all that all that stuff is very is lovely and, and played pretty straight i will say as uh like up and down as i am on different aspects of uh eurovision and as not into the romance and and the fantasy of where that romance goes as i am the touch of the underdog doesn't win but they don't win because they made a conscious choice to go a different direction like i love that I love the fact that they flip the expected on its head, but they find a way to do it that still feels fully triumphant and not like one of those, well, we weren't expecting even to make third place. So like the fact that we made third place is great. And maybe next year, like I've seen that kind of ending on movies and you always kind of go, I'm glad they avoided the cliche, but like it just doesn't feel satisfying. This felt fully satisfying and fully earned. Because they managed to make it uh, not a, not just a choice, but like a really conscious, deliberate choice. In the same way that the uh, the kiss at the end of the rainbow at the end of a mighty wind is a very conscious, deliberate choice on both of their parts, and that's what it makes what makes it feel so so earned and so special. I think one another thing we talk about is is sort of how these actors play against one another. We talked about. Farrell, just on a script level, but I think also on a performance level, being generous to uh, McAdams' character and McAdams' performance. I'm sure there's a little room for improv in Eurovision, but it's not what it's founded on. But I feel like, you know, obviously in A Mighty Wind, so much of it is improv and you have to be generous there. Like, you know, how do you see those different dynamics playing out between these two films? Yes, you know, I kind of wonder about, you know, the improv element of Eurovision and how big a part it might be play and i'm a little bit skeptical for one it's it doesn't it doesn't feel quite as improvisational as other feral movies Two, you know feral himself co-wrote the script um so maybe a lot of that off the wall you know humor that we expect from feral is already just sort of baked into the material and i think it might also have to do with how feral works with certain filmmakers i know he and Adam McKay, who directed him in Anchorman and in Talladega Nights and those stepbrothers, I know that process on set is indeed very heavily improvised with a lot of different 
kind of reads on the material. I'm going to guess that this was a little bit more set in stone. Um, you know, and, and of course, as for a mighty wind, I mean, these are people who have worked together for a really long time, and, and there's definitely an improvisational framework that they've perfected and refined over the years. And one of the things I was saying, you know, in that last week's episode about a mighty wind is that I think there's a comfort and confidence with that group that they don't force the jokes when they're not there. They give you kind of different looks. They're going to, they're going to be, you know, guest seems to be much more keen on modulating the tone rather than trying to press for laughs too much um, because there's an emotional component he has to look out for too, a character component he has to look out for as well. You know, it's an interesting contrast in style. My understanding with Guest's films was always that he works with the actors to create the characters and then they do a lot of improv. And then he and whoever he's collaborating with go away and script the film based on that improv, but that none of what we're actually seeing on screen or little of what we're seeing on screen is actually improv in the moment. Uh, that's like the Mike which, Lee approach. Yeah, there are a lot of different variants on it that uh, that different directors use. And I think what it comes down to, like uh, the hitting Bob Balaban on the head uh, thing must have been an improv because they talk about how they had to cut away, you know, was unanticipated. So they didn't have any more footage of it happening because it surprised everybody so much. But I think it's very hard to guess with any given Christopher Guest scene. Uh, like how much of it could possibly be improv in the moment and how much of it is scripted. And I think that approach, like an, an awful lot of like Apatowian comedies that feature a lot of like actual, we just got a whole bunch of comedians together and let them riff and then tried to cut it together cogently. Like those films to me often tend to be like a little baggy and rambly. And I feel like A Mighty Wind and other Christopher Guest comedies end up feeling a lot tighter than that while still having like an everybody kind of like going their own way, like striking out for the joke and then being supported by everybody feel like the generosity of improv is there, but the sometimes sloppiness of it isn't. It seems like a, a pretty good balance. If I had to guess where there's improv in Eurovision, if there is. I'd guess that a lot of the uh, Amer- insults to Americans, uh, mm. th- th- that just like reeks of alt takes. Like, okay, we'll do another, we'll do another, and you know, we'll pick the best ones later. But yeah, I, like kind of continuing what Scott was saying, I think the collaboration that's going on in Eurovision is for the most part not on the comedic collaboration that's going on in Eurovision is for the most part not happening on screen. I think it's happening in the scripting process with Dobkin, because I, I read an interview we had at, at Vulture with, with Dobkin about this. And funny story, he did not want to do a film about Eurovision until he found out that that Farrell was involved. Um, and when he got Farrell's version of the script, it was very short, not even close to where it needed to be to be feature length. So I think like the, the collaboration happened at that stage, um, you know, and I'm sure improv played a role in the writing process, but it's not something that the performers were executing and then the film being shaped around that. Genevieve, I've got a question for you. As we're talking about the generosity of these films in terms of the actors playing off of each other in terms of, of giving each other space, it sounded like you really didn't like the Mitch and Mickey dynamic because you felt like... uh Catherine O'Hara ended up without a lot of freedom because she was emotionally carrying this, uh, you know, mentally damaged boy man with all of his needs. Mm -hmm. You do kind of have the exact same 
like broad framework going on in Eurovision, but you seems to really like it in that case. What makes these two relationships different for, for you in a, in a way that makes you hate one and love uh, one? Well, I'm going to reel back the, the hate description here because I don't hate it. <laughs> mildly yeah. dislike and mildly yeah. like. I knew this was coming uh, when, when I was uh, describing the relationship in, in Eurovision. Um, and I think it has to do that for me, Will Ferrell's character in Eurovision is, I don't want to say more complex, but there's no more narrative meat to that performance. Like he makes the story go in a way that I feel Mitch just kind of sits there and is, and does his Mitch thing. And it's up to O'Hara to kind of make the story coalesce around their partnership and i think that it's a lot more of a back and forth dynamic in eurovision yeah i, I feel like I, I need to stick up again for eugene levy in a mighty win i that. love eugene levy like this is not like i try to think about will ferrell i just try to think about like where he is at i mean when the film begins because i, I think the understanding the assumption is that this guy is just too non-functioning as a person to, to even pull this off. And maybe that's the Brian Wilson factor, right? Of just this guy yeah. is this guy is just doesn't have it all together. It's not is not fully it, it can't be engaged enough to even pull off something like this. And and I think from that context, you can appreciate the baby steps that he takes. Not, not even baby steps like for him they're giant steps to be able to connect again with Catherine O'Hara and to be able to pull off this performance and to be able to kind of feel everything again. Um, that's a, it's a major step for him to take. I don't know. I, I just, I, I, I have to stand up for, for, for that element of the film. I, I, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. And, and like, this is a, this is a me thing, you know, I think maybe if I had a stronger connection to the types of artists he is referencing or the types of personalities he's referencing in this performance maybe i think might have helped to see a little more of mickey as he was outside of just like archival performance footage mm -hmm. in quote marks that we get i don't know i, I don't, I don't want to like harp on it because it's not something that bugs me a lot you know it's just sort of a weak point for me in a movie that you know i wish wasn't because like i said i like eugene levy a lot and i like Catherine o'hare a lot and i like them together a lot mm -hmm. this is just not an iteration of their comedic partnership that i really respond to well i want to end on a bum note uh let's see <laughs> Hmm, well, it's so, not a bum note. It's my opinion, Keith. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I want to say something positive about uh, yeah, our, our, these films. I'm positive this would have been a better movie without it. <laughs> I will fear. That is madness. Man, dude, bad takes. It's all like, through this. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, say what? Like, no, I'm trying to, trying to think like, Mononcle would have been a better film without Jacques Tati. Okay. It's just like he's like he's the guy. He's like the middle of the. He's like the middle of the film. He's, he generated the thing. We've litigated this. And the fact that we're talking about the same things over and over again suggests that we perhaps uh, might want to wind this down. I'm sure that some of these controversial opinions will will spur some feedback, and we can talk about them some more. Then, uh, for now, though, let's let's wind things down. Uh, a Mighty Wind is currently rentable on various VOD services, and uh, as of today, as we were recording this, it just appeared on Hulu. 
Hulu, so enjoy it there. But better yet, I really recommend the Blu-ray and DVD editions of this and other Christopher Guest films because they're there's chock full of deleted scenes and commentaries and extended performances and and uh, just a really if you like those films, it really gives you a lot more of what you like about them. And as for Eurovision Song Contest, it's on Netflix. Just a click away if you subscribe to that service. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I am going to pull Atasha Robinson and give you three things that have been uh, in the world of film that have been good for me lately, but they're all kind of different media. Um, the first is actually a podcast recommendation. I'll keep this r- real brief, but Will Ferrell was on the Lost Culturistas podcast with Matt Rogers and Bowen Yang, uh, the latter of whom is currently a player on SNL, um, which leads to some fun behind-the-scenes insights about SNL. Um, there's also like a really fun, like extended sequence of them just like talking about how Anchorman shaped their their comedy. So it's, it's a fun like comedy nerd discussion. But there's also like a really good conversation about Eurovision that is super engaging and funny. And Farrell is just really a delight, I think. <laughs> Tasha, your mileage may vary. Um, but I think he brings like no ego to the conversation is just like really eager to play with Matt and Bowen. So it's a fun listen if you want a little more Eurovision or a little more Farrell in your life. Uh, second, I want to give a recommendation for, of a short film. Uh, it's called Love Me Like You Should, The Brave and Bold Sylvester. Uh, it's a 15-minute documentary produced by Amazon Music, and it's streaming free on YouTube. Uh, it's a fun and really digestible introduction to the late singer Sylvester, who had a string of disco hits in the 70s, uh, most notably You Make Me Feel Mighty Real, which is the song from which the film takes its title and is also one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, I have probably burned one million calories to that song in my lifetime. Uh, <laughs> what's interesting about Love Me Like You Should is that brief as it is, it provides a really good sense of how singing Yiller Sylvester was at the time, and to some extent still is, as a very famous person who we would today describe as gender fluid, but back then was just Sylvester. And that narrative aligns really well with the film's secondary interest in the disco phenomenon and its ensuing backlash, which we increasingly understand today as being rooted in homophobia and toxic masculinity, uh, both of which Sylvester is a great antidote for. So Love Me Like You Should, uh, The Brave and Bold Sylvester is on YouTube. And then lastly, I want to recommend a feature-length documentary uh, called Disclosure, which you can differentiate from the 1994 Michael Douglas erotic thriller of the can same we? name. Do we, do we its... have to? <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, and you should. Uh, it is subtitled Trans Lives on Screen. Uh, this is a Netflix documentary that came out last month, Pride Month. And uh, the most simplistic way to describe it is the celluloid closet, but for trans actors. And it is that to an extent. There are definitely similarities between the films, particularly in its format, which is essentially just a blend of talking heads and clips from movies and television in the sort of essay format, and in its focus on how trans characters have been coded in different ways over the decades. Surprisingly, A Mighty Wind doesn't come up, though um, the film does spend a lot of time on comedy's obsession with transsexuality as an easy gag. 
Uh, but what I found really moving and resonant about Disclosure is hearing these different trans performers talk about figuring out their own identities through the very distorted lens of how trans people were portrayed on screen. Uh, the point comes up repeatedly that it was and still is highly unlikely that a young trans person just figuring out that they're trans will have another trans person in their life. So these depictions on film and on television, flawed as they are, can be a really important factor in shaping their sense of self. Uh, repeatedly, we hear from Talking Heads how even though this movie or that TV show has some really messed up ideas about transness, they still have a lot of affection for it or that it remains really important to them. And I think it's a really good example and reminder that you can critique and even criticize a piece of art and still believe that it has value. It's an enlightening, educational watch full of familiar faces and familiar movies, and I would very much recommend you watch Disclosure on Netflix. Tasha, how about you? Well, by the time this podcast comes out, uh, it's entirely possible that everybody that should see this movie will have already seen this movie. On July 10th, uh, the new movie from Gina Prince-Bythewood, writer-director of Beyond the Lights and Love and Basketball. Her new movie is The Old Guard. It was written by Greg Rucka and adapted from a graphic novel and uh, intended graphic novel series by Greg Rucka. And I kind of, it, like, anybody who's uh, seen it knows what the hook is, and anybody who hasn't, the movie definitely doesn't upfront it, so I, I don't want to give it away, but it's being billed as a kind of subversive superhero movie. And I don't think that this is entirely an accurate description, but it is a description designed to get the right people in through the door to see it. Uh, people who enjoy like fantasy action, people who enjoy superhero movies, I think will, will really enjoy this movie for a variety of reasons. But what I, I interviewed uh, Gina Prince-Bythewood earlier today, specifically about this movie. And one of the things we talked about was what drew her to the material. Uh, Charlize Theron stars in this movie as the leader of a, a group of uh, kind of underground militants that travel around the world to to trouble spots, like dealing with problems. Um, and again, if you've seen this movie or read anything about it, you probably already know like what the story is there. But I'm not going to touch it for the hope of somebody having the Terminator 2 experience of not actually knowing what the reveal is. But uh, early on in the film, Kiki Lane uh, is a character named Niall, joins the group, and she is a, a young black female Marine um, who comes to them from from a hotspot, from, from combat. And the movie ends up being very much about Charlize Theron as, as this leader and uh, Kiki Lane's character as this new arrival. And it, it's an action movie that's primarily about two women as like very aggressive hand fighting uh, soldiers, warriors uh, in the middle of this very multicultural, diverse group uh, that includes a gay couple and a, a Muslim character. And everybody's from from different countries. They have different accents. They speak different languages. It's just a very diverse group. So the movie itself, I don't think reinvents fantasy action or or the superhero movie but like the casting and the characterization the particular places that the script puts the emphasis the degree to which it goes out of its way to make all of these characters seem human um, and fully developed even to a bigger degree than Rucka's comic did is pretty remarkable like Rucka himself admits that the character that Kiki Lane plays in the movie uh, in the graphic novel, he didn't think she was very well fleshed out. She was kind of a, a one-dimensional recipient of exposition. And here she's, a, you know, a character with a, a family and a future and a life and a lot of considerations that seem really interesting. 
So, like, again, I think people who are going into it expecting a radical reinvention of the genre may not get what they want. But people who are expecting, like, John Wick style, close up, really well choreographed and shot combat, or like a lot of kind of unexpected twists and turns, I think are really going to enjoy this movie. And it's just it's a really good popcorn flick. It's the kind of popcorn flick made by somebody who thinks a great deal about art films and about non-popcorn flicks and how they can inform popcorn flicks. And as a result, it just it feels smarter uh, than an awful lot of action movies and just kind of more of the moment than an awful lot of action movies while still being very thoroughly escapist and and exciting. So Junior Prince Bythewood's The Old Guard. Um, it was funded by Netflix. It's on Netflix. I'm super yeah. excited for this one. I mean, I <laughs> I, I love Gina Prince Bythewood. I love Shirley's Throne. Like I'm 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 there on uh, posting day, <laughs> right? Posting day. <laughs> Keith, what about you? Um, I am going to go back a few decades to talk about an old film that if you've seen before, you might want to watch again, which is the 1953 version of The War of the Worlds, uh, directed by Byron Haskin and produced by George Powell, uh, the animator and later director um, who uh, was involved in a lot of science fiction and fantasy films and got to start doing uh, the uh, doing puppetoons, if you know those uh, bits of uh, stop motion animation. But it is a film I had seen before and liked just fine. And then I saw it this time and was totally blown away by the atmosphere and the look of it. And there's a very nerdy uh, explanation as, as to why. If you've seen the film before, you've probably seen a print uh, used on television or uh, even up to DVD that was taken from Eastman Color, when in fact the film was shot in Technicolor, which was kind of a, a darker and allowed for kind of a dark, darker and softer look that made the special effects uh, much better looking to the point where you probably, if you've seen the film, you might remember that you saw wires, uh, you know, supporting these. Um, supporting the UFOs and various other special effects, when in fact, as it originally screened in Technicolor, and as as, as you can see it on on this new uh, Criterion Blu-ray, which is all the same print is also on iTunes, that's gone. It was never really supposed to be there. It, it, it's a very dark and unsettling, very colorful, uh, you know, filled with very strong colors, not unlike the original you know, Star Trek series, which used uh, strong colors really effectively. Uh, but it also has this really dark apocalyptic tone to it that's that that is not that far removed from the steven spielberg remake which all of us on this podcast <laughs> adore <clears throat> which was um you know you know very intense and violent but you really get this sort of sense of the, of the world falling apart in in this film and it's done you know it's not you know it is, it is well budgeted for a 50s film but there there are far more limitations as to what they can do in terms of location shooting and and special effects and uh there's some wonderful models of downtown los angeles being destroyed that that um are you know used extremely effectively and uh, i don't know I, I think it's it's a great also kind of a great uh cold war era film as well one thing about the wells story is it is comes from a particular time and place but is proven quite adaptable to other eras um 
be it the Orson Welles adaptation or the Spielberg adaptation. And uh, this is a uh, one that, that stands proudly beside them. And like I said, if you, if you grew up seeing this film on television, uh, you kind of owe it yourself to give it another another look. It's it's a, uh, Instead of being like sort of a, an, an important influential science fiction uh, film, it comes off as just, just a great film. So I highly recommend it. That's War of the Worlds, which is uh, new on Criterion, and the same print is available on iTunes, but without all the wonderful Criterion special features you get. Uh, Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, so um, this is going to be a little bit random. I had occasion to uh, look into a couple of Toby Hooper films from the 80s. I mean, I think people know him, of course, from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He had a career that had its ups and downs, but I think he had a lot of ups in the 80s, the most significant being Poltergeist. But I am a big fan of The Fun House, which is a film he made in 1981, for Universal, I think, and it was a film that where the studio was really wanting their own Halloween or their own Friday the 13th movie, and he delivers on that kind of at the beginning. It's kind of a fake out. He kind of offers up the obligatory, you know, psycho shower scene, and then it just ends up being kind of a fake out for what the movie really is, which is just... A, a single setting horror film that is that's about four teenagers who go to this super sketchy carnival that's been <laughs> posted in town it's one of those with you know with kind of rickety rides and you know there's a freak show and 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 kind of a kind of you know some girls with like pasties and it's like it's like a very you know, in, in carnies left and right, and, and, and it's a film that ends up owing a little bit more to, to something like Todd Browning's Freaks than it does, you know, the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Though it does have, um, you know, some bloodshed and uh, you know, there's plenty of killing in it, which is not really what Freaks is all about. But um, it's got a wonderful feel to it. I mean, it just it, you feel like, like um, the, the setting is just so well evoked it's it's shot in vivid color in cinemascope and um it just has a different it's similar to certain films from the era but at all at the same time completely distinct and, and something in a movie that just doesn't get mentioned enough in toby hooper's filmography as being you know a real highlight you've seen it right keith yeah i like that movie a lot i haven't seen it in years but i remember it was a it was a video store favorite um when I was in high school and, and I, I think Cooper in general doesn't get as much uh, credit as he deserves. I think part of it is the, the poltergeist issue, which is yeah. the issue of whether, you know, how, to what degree Steven Spielberg was involved in actually directing that film. Yeah. But I mean, and, and I, and, I, and I, you know, I don't think we'll ever know when I interviewed Hooper, he was kind of tired of talking about it. And, and, yeah, and, and, so. and yeah, of course he would be. Uh, but I, you know, I imagine the answer is somewhere between each of them being wholly responsible. I don't, I think there's probably a little bit of each, but I mean, taking Poltergeist out of the equation, the Funhouse is great. And then he did this really uh, pretty great run for the rest of the eighties. Life force is a truly strange, um, mm-hmm. science fiction vampire movie that I was looking forward to seeing on 70 millimeter at the music box before uh, coronavirus shut things down. But uh, Adrian Invaders from Mars is great. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a really, um, uh, it's a grody film, but it's, I think it's, uh, it's really. Did he direct that? Yeah. It's, it's a, and it's really, okay. it's a really yeah. great Reagan era satire that, uh, um, that's a, it's a more, much more of a overt comedy than the original, uh, but it's got its own kind of element. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's very different. Yeah. Yeah, no, so it's a uh, you know, Hooper's Hooper's good. Uh, check out he his is, he stuff. is good. He is good. Yeah, oh. so yeah, the Fun House. You can kind of, 
I think it's just it's something that kind of gets overlooked, and uh, it shouldn't be. It's, it's, cause it, so if you, if you like 80s horror, it's, it's uh, worth catching up. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out July 21st and July 28th. Tasha, what's coming up next? By the time this episode drops, Hulu will have premiered Palm Springs, a comedy starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti as two strangers who meet at a wedding reception where tensions are already running high. And then they wind up stuck in a time loop, reliving the same day at the wedding over and over again. That's a really simple description for a movie that actually has a lot of surprises and twists that you should discover for yourself. But for various reasons, it naturally took us back to the grandfather of repeating day movie comedies, Groundhog Day, featuring Bill Murray reliving the same day over and over until he gets it right. Both of these films explore the fantastic and fantastical possibilities of a reliving part of your life, and they both explore the horrors and disappointments of being stuck in a rut. Also, they're both really funny. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of A Mighty Wind, Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of The Next Picture Show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve? Uh, you can find my work at Vulture.com, where I am the deputy TV editor. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and any other social media platforms I may be lurking on at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me writing there. You can find me editing and commissioning pieces there. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And if you haven't had enough of me talking about Studio Ghibli yet, uh, you can right now find me on the Letterboxd <sighs> podcast, Talking Studio Ghibli with Adam Kempinar of Film Spotting and uh, uh, several other people who are big fans, including the guy with the highest rated, uh, most repeated review of a, a Studio Ghibli movie on Letterboxd. Scott, what about you? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. It's at Scott underscore Tobias. So you can find my work in the New York Times, uh, the Guardian, uh, Vulture, uh, The Ringer, and other fine uh, outlets. Keith? I'm on Twitter at KFIPS3000. I'm a freelance writer. You can find my work at such places as The Ringer, Vulture, Mel, Rolling Stone. You know, I'm, I'm out there. TV Guy, that's, that's another one. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to our show on Apple Podcasts, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake, Jake's for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Yeah.